Hey, you savages and mother lovers alike. Welcome to Greg Medford's show. I'm your host here in Phoenix, Arizona. Today is a non-political show. So those of you who've been waiting through all the politics, trying to get to the stuff that's non-political, today's a non-political show. We may talk some politics. We may stumble across because any red, white, and blue, red-blooded American who's ever like gone to a foreign land uh, doing the bidding of our nation who isn't pissed off right now is fucking brain dead. So we may stumble across some interesting political topic, and we may rip it for a few minutes. I have an interesting guest today. He's traversed two branches of the United States military, been all over the globe in dark corners, and has made a really interesting kind of tier one move, which you don't see. I mean, I've never actually even heard of it. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Our guest today is Mike Rutledge. Mike is a former Navy SEAL. Uh, he also flew special operations in the army. Is that how you say it? That's correct. And, uh, and then now he is a, uh, believe it or not, he's a barnstorming firefighter. Uh, we'll talk a bunch with him today about the details. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Sounds like it's going to get spicy. So uh, let's give everybody just a really quick, the really quick onesie. Um, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, small little farm town about uh, three hours southeast or southwest of Chicago. Did you grow up swimming? No. No. As a matter of fact, uh, I was an unathletic fat band kid. <laughs> fat band kid. To be to be truth, to give you the visual. Okay. That's perfect. And then uh, you ended up uh, stumbling into the Navy after high school? I did. Um well, sort of. Um, I actually did become athletic uh, around sophomore year of high school. I was pretty good at football. Um, went to a Division One college for football and lasted an entire semester. Where'd you go for school? I uh, actually went to uh, Iowa State University. Iowa and State. apparently you got to go to class. So weird. So I, <laughs> I thought you could just go for football. Fucking but, unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So... So they asked me to leave first end of the first semester and uh, finished a couple finished that first year at a community college that my mom worked at it was the only way I could get in because she worked there, and uh, so that was in nineteen nine nineteen ninety. So of course, okay, I'm a product of the original Top Gun era. I'm like, I'm gonna go fly. I'm gonna go fly F-14s, not right. knowing any of the complexities involved with that. Yeah. Anyway. The, the short version, well, I'm sure we'll get into the deeper ones, but I thought I was going to fly F-14s. No, I wasn't. I ended up being uh, uh, an air crew member on a helicopter, a CH-46 helicopter in Desert Storm and uh, delivering oh. cheese balls and sodas back and forth to carry Anyway, I did that for... That was my neck of the woods. Yeah. In a And helicopters that were all older than us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I did that for about two years. And one day I saw these guys get off the helicopter with, you know, long, wavy blonde hair and big muscles and just wearing shorts and... I'm like, who are those guys? I'm like, if they're in our Navy, I want to do that job. So that was long before the internet or email or phones or, you know, and there's like exactly one or two books published on Vietnam SEALs. Right. And that's all I had. In fact, I read this book called SEAL Team One by Dick Couch. And uh, I'm like, well, I'm going to go do that. And I signed up to go to Bud's. And then lo and behold, you know, eight months later, I walked through the door of Bud's and uh, graduated in 94. And, that was before uh, it was cool. That was before there was any media, before it was cool. Well, that was before it was the how to get a book deal. 
Yeah, yeah. There wasn't all there was were some some Vietnam <laughs> there was vets. Martinko you know, and, and a couple other yeah. guys, right? Now Martinko was the originator of uh, self promoting. You know, for better <laughs> yeah, or worse, yeah, but. Yeah. But Commander Marchenko, you know, he had some he had some pretty good stuff, and he, there was there was a element of his was, books that were real. Kardashian of the special forces community. He was, he he actually was before it was cool, you know. But a lot of people forget that he actually was a legendary operator. Yeah, you know, before before he decided for glitz and glamour and and make it a you know get an agent. I mean, he was a legendary operator. I mean, he, good for him. You he know? changed the face of the community. Right. Um. Anyway, but yeah, his his book Red Cell came out, or no, I'm sorry, uh, whatever the first one was, Rogue Warrior. Yeah, yeah, Rogue Warrior. And I'm like a 19 year old E3 reading it, you know. I'm like, shit, that's what I gotta do. Oh, I know. You know, so that was like I said, that was for the age of the internet. So anyway, went through buds, and I graduated in class 197, and uh, went to SEAL Team One, and spent a number of years there. Did uh, three deployments there. One as a team leader or a leading go? leading petty, petty officer. Um, well, at that time, the SEAL teams were geographically oriented. Yep. So SEAL Team 1 had Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. SEAL Team 3 had the desert because you know, there yep. really wasn't any desert going on. SEAL Team 5 had Korea and, you know, some other areas. And so, man, for a kid from Iowa or Iowa and slash Illinois, I spent a lot of time in Asia. Yeah. You know, that was before there's really any war to fight and all that. So lots and lots of time training and, and then, uh, Late 90s, you know, we started doing quite a bit of, uh, I did do one amphibious ready group deployment with the Marines. Um, and that was pretty enlightening because there were some contentious stuff there. We were doing non-compliant ship boardings yeah. uh, for, you know, Iraqi flag vessels. And, and were you doing that with Marines? Was it a joint thing? No, it wasn't joint. Okay. You know, it was it was just us. There was one SEAL platoon based on a, on a flat top um, USS, I can't even remember the name of it now, but Bellawood, I believe. Oh, that's um, one of the uh, chopper LHAs, carriers. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so, I mean, that was that was a pretty good experience. And then... For those of you who don't know, the Marine Corps has got some boats that are kind of like aircraft carriers, but they're not for jets. They're not for that kind of deep water jet operation. They're to get like a a, a, a mew in, in the yeah. theater real fast. Yeah. And, and a SEAL platoon is just a tiny, tiny little, little capable piece of that. I mean, we interoperate, you know, with the Marines, but some standalone missions, but... Uh, yeah. How do you guys like... How did you like um, across the different communities... You know, everyone's got their preference. You know, I like working with these guys. Like, I've had friends of mine who were civilian sniper schools that did real specialized sniper training that had military teams come through, and they said the Marines always got too drunk when they came out. The Army guys were super profesh. I mean, what did you – did you have any you know, funny so generalizations? you got to remember, it, my, it, my theory on leadership being on teams is whatever team you're on is the best and everyone else sucks. <laughs> you know, like, like, that should be. I don't care what team it is. Yeah, yeah. If you don't think you're the best and everyone else blows, you're – you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, so that, that being said, you know, when you're in the SEAL teams, you're like, well, everyone else is subpar and they suck. <laughs> now, further on the story, you know, when I get to be fairly senior in the Army and I'm flying the 160th and I'm flying every Tier 1 unit, you know, you have a little broader perspective and you grow up. Your perspective from sure. 24 or 25 is much different when you're 45. Maybe a little less tribal. Yeah, yeah, a little more, okay, well, perhaps I was a jackass, you know? <laughs> Some, there is some of that. Um, you know, that that's almost a podcast in itself because, you know, not to be noncommittal, but I've had such a good time with all the operators from all the services. I mean, yeah. I could I could sit here and go down a list of of 10 and 10 of goods and bads of, you know, the MARSOC guys, the Ranger Regiment, the Special Forces guys or CAG guys, you know, I mean, just right down the list. And they're pretty even. And 
now that I've got, you know, two sons that are actually active duty now, I got one that's going through Green Platoon to fly MH-47s so with the 160th of the captain. I got another one who's an infantryman, who, infantryman who just got back from uh, Syria. So my perspective now is that, you know what, I'm not so divisive about the particular units now, like whatever, Rangers are better, SF's better. What I have realized is the dudes and the dudettes that frequent those units are all the same. It's just a different flavor of the same game. Hmm. You know, I mean, quite frankly, the guys who are in the Ranger Regiment, if they knew how to swim, would do just fine in buds. Right. You know, right. Um, the team guys, if they could ever learn how to do land nav, would do pretty well at the Ranger Regiment or so on. You know, so I think it's a much less territorial capability thing, and it's a lot more, more heart. You know, hmm. it's just serving in special operations requires a very different mentality. And uh, I don't think it matters necessarily what uniform you're wearing. Cool. Um, so you spent a um, certain amount of time, SEAL Team 1. How long were you there for? Yeah, about uh, eight years. And then is that where you m made this miraculous transition over to the Army? It is. It is. I actually was instructing at the time, and I and I left. Give us the. So you were a cadre teaching there yeah. over in Coronado or something. Yeah. Um, give us uh, a little bit of. Uh, just give us the one page on how you made that crazy transition because, we, like I was seeing earlier, you know, there's. I don't know. You probably know what the number is, and I don't know what the inflation adjusted number is. But you probably they probably government's got a couple million bucks into a fully trained operational seal. Yeah, you got to remember, I was actually pretty. I was pretty senior at the time too. I was right. Like I mean, you were ten guy. years in, so. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're halfway in your career. I was 12, 12 years in. Okay. So, um, I mean, they, this is someone who's got a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of experience. And usually they don't say, oh, okay, well, now you can go be a, a PR person well, in D.C. here's the deal. If I ever, and I kind of laugh because they say team guys always write books. If I, were to ever write a, if I were to ever write a book, it would be called Pivotal People. Because, no kidding, it's, it's a lot less about me, but I can pick in every point of my career one person that said yes when everyone else said no, and it changed the course of my entire life. And that was actually one of those. So you gotta remember, we just got back from the first deployment after 9-11. The Navy had a stop loss for all kinds of pilots, SEALs, EOD, you know, cause they were foreseeing this, this big elongated combat operations. Yeah. And they got it right. <laughs> yeah, and they did, and they were not wrong about that. So me not knowing all this, while I'm actually on this deployment, I've submitted all this stuff to transfer to the Army to be a, a warrant officer helicopter pilot. And, and the reason you want to do that? Well, you got to remember, I came from a flying family to start with. So, I okay. mean, aviation was always in my deal. Um, I originally wanted to be a pilot and ended up on a helicopter, you know, shoving cargo out the back. So I was a little disillusioned. So I'm like, oh, I'll go be a SEAL. You know, so I don't want to say it was a consolation prize. It ended up being a very long detour, but a detour nonetheless. So, I mean, I always still wanted to fly. Um, I was too old to get in. At that time, I was too old to get in flight school in the Navy. Um, the Army was wavering everything because yep. they were also anticipating high attrition rate for pilots. Yep. So how old were you at the time when you made the transition? I think I was 30 or 31 at the time. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was pretty old. Yeah. Long, in, in long in the tooth for pilots. Yeah. 27 was the uh, cutoff for the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so I was still flying as a civilian when I was in SEAL teams. I was towing banners, you know, towing gliders. Out I on was, the beach there. In, yeah. In Cornell yeah, yeah. or uh, San Diego. I was flying out of Gillespie Field towing banners. Love, I love Gillespie. Yeah. That's one of my fun little favorite airports yeah. to fly out of. And uh, Skydive Elsinore, they used to give us jump tickets to go up there and jump. And I would give my buds all my jump tickets, and I'd go next door and tow gliders. Oh. So because at that time, believe it or not, I was like, oh, I think I want to be a crop duster when I get out of the Navy. You know, I didn't end up doing it until 20 years later. But anyway, so um, when we're overseas, you know, we're working with these 160th guys. And, and one guy, his name's 
CDB4 uh, star, and he's since long retired. I'm like, hey, how do I come fly for the 160th? I didn't want to be an Army pilot. I wanted to be a 160th pilot. And he gave me this quick thing. He's like, well, hey, I'm going back. I'm going to be the regiment, you know, assessment or recruiting officer. And he gave me his information. And uh, Is he a pivotal guy? Absolutely. Okay. Well, not yet, but he was my first contact with it. Okay. Um, anyway, so uh, I started submitting all this stuff to him, and uh, it was a relatively easy process. One of those points in that process was you had to get a conditional release from your service. So oh, that, imagine we just got that's back. That's the hard one, though, yeah. right? Like that's oh, yeah. the one you're like, what? Army's like, yeah, we'll get, we'll take you. So right. it was all approved. And then I had to like hand walk because that was before computers. Well, I won't say before, but you know, emails about all you were doing. Yeah. yeah. So I had to hand walk this to my command master chief and my CO, who's uh, Commander Tom Carlson. Or I, think, well, I can't remember his first name, Tom, but last name was Carlson. I remember that. And, uh, and that's the, every all the enlisted, all the chiefs and master to go locker at SEAL Team One said, Fuck no, we are not letting you go. So everybody said no. Were they pissed? They weren't pissed. It was just like, hey, we got a lot of stuff going on. Well, how about uh tell me just what do you remember how you were feeling as you're going to tell the first one? Well, I honestly was excited to fly and I didn't if you get to know anything about me, I didn't expect them to fully support me. And I just asked, Hey, I don't I don't expect you to like it, just don't thwart me. Right. You know, I was pretty respectful about it. And I had a good reputation as a team. So, you know, there was probably more remorseful of, you know, don't you're impactful. We yeah. don't want to lose you. Yeah. Never once was anybody a jackass to me. And people ask, like, oh, were they, were, you know, were they bitter? Never once was anyone, you know, obstructive. So they were cool. Yeah. They were totally cool. And, you know, truth be told, a lot of them, like, dude, I wish I'd have thought of that, you know. <laughs> They're like, really so, cool, but no. <laughs> yeah. So, Anyway, so the CEO ended up saying yes, and I and I screwed that up a little bit. Commander Carlson had since left SEAL Team 1, and I had a great relationship with him. And he had gone up to, to D.C., and he was in charge of all the SEALs. He was the SEAL community manager. Okay. So my CEO had said yes. It went to D.C., and up three levels, I got to watch it, three levels it got denied, denied, denied. And then it had to go to him for final approval. And... I only know that it went this way because I got it back. And it had all these no, 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 no. no. Yes. And it got to Captain Carlson, yes. So he basically usurped all the no's. And no kidding, like, you know, that was in January of 02, I think. And then June of 02, all the processing and stuff, I walked down to the Army recruiter as a Navy or the MEP station as a Navy E7. And they swore me in. And the next day I'm an Army E7. I pack up my family, my one-year-old kid. And we trucked to uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama to check in for Warren Officer Canada School. It was that fast. Wow. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of bananas. That's a, yeah. And so that's like political capital or um, personal capital that paid off from years of busting your ass. Yeah, if job. you're a shitbag, you're not going to get that kind of treatment. Because he had already you know? left. You guys are parted. He's over here yeah. doing his other thing. And he just sees a name come across his desk of one of his guys. Yeah, and it, and I never spoke to him. It wasn't a personal like, hey, sir, you can didn't you help me favor, out? Right. Um, you know, so I would love to say it's because I thought I was such an awesome operator. That likely wasn't the case. I think it was more of somebody saying, sure, or why not, instead of no. You know, there's so many people that are spring-loaded for no. Yeah. Because it's easier. It's easier to say no than yeah. it is to have and to it, justify saying, yeah, people sure. Are, people are risk-averse as hell. Absolutely. So um, did you ever get a chance to thank him? I did. So my Bud's class reunion was about five or six years ago. Um, well, I'll, I'll back that up. In 2005, um, went to Damneck for the memorial for uh, Extortion 17. Um, 
And he was there, obviously, like three quarters of the SEAL teams were there. Um, and I was in my dress blues, army uniform, you know, my wings, my trident and all that. And, uh, and he was there. And uh, that was the first time I got to thank him, you know, because, of course, we're all drunk. Seems like the opportune time to go up to a captain and say, hey, thanks, sir. But he obviously remembered me, and he's like, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Oh, man. You know? And just so, a whim. Just imagine. Just a, yeah. And I can't imagine all the pressure he was under. But And then fast forward around 2014 or 15, we had our 20-year Buds class reunion in Coronado. And part of that was, um, you know, you sit there and you witness whatever the nearest Buds class graduation is. And so we got to watch that, and he was there, and he was retired, but he was there to see someone else. And I was like, hey, sir, do you remember me? He goes, hell yeah, I remember you. So I got to actually thank him twice, you know, because that time I was a uh, chief warrant officer for, you know, I'd been in like 27 years, and it was a it was a very appropriate time for both of us. You know, he was old and retired. I'm getting old, you know. And uh, anyway, so that was fairly special. So very pivotal guy, you know, and there's probably four other ones prior to him that more had to do with my upbringing to get to that point. But yeah. career-wise, you know, talk about a pivotal guy. He said yes, and he could have just said no, and it was easier, and pretended to not even know my name. You know, I was an E6 or E7 at the time. I would have never seen him. I have no recourse. You know, there was no appeal process for that. Right, right. Cool. So you get over to the Army, and you're are you in, at that point, uh, the warrant officer pilot training is generally filled with reasonably shit hot enlisted guys who are making that move, or is it a bunch of green people? It's like half and half. Is yeah, it? it's... Okay. it's uh, um, the warrant officer thing's so off my radar because I only saw in the Marine Corps like two warrant officers yeah, the entire time. It's I was so, in. I mean, just again, that almost deserves its own chapter. But I will say the warrant officer concept for the Army, at least as far as flying goes, mm -hmm. is one of the most untapped. I mean, it is the hidden secret of the military. If you like flying, if you don't like flying, it's, it's not going to be your jam. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's amazing. But the funny part is you got to remember, so I transferred to the Army, and I just spent 12 years bad-mouthing the Army, you know? <laughs> I'm like, you guys suck. You're a bunch of goobers, you know? And I went through every Army school. I went through Airborne, Pathfinder, Freefall, Breacher. You know, I mean, I spent half my time going to Army schools. And so here I am, like, in the middle of the Army. So I quickly learned, all right, I can't make fun of them anymore because I, I am them. But, uh, you know, I had to do eight weeks or nine weeks of Warrant Officer Canada School, which is just people, guys and girls from all over the Army, regular Army, um, you know, and I'm sitting there getting my ass handed to me every day in southern Alabama in July, 90 degrees, 100% humidity. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't hard. It was just tedious. So yeah. I graduated from that and then immediately started flight school. And there was a push. Like at that time, they were trying to pump pilots through. So it's, sometimes it could be a two-year process now. But from the time I started Warrant Officer Canada School till the time I got wings, and reported the 160th, I think it was 12 or 13 months. That's fast. I mean, it was fast. Yeah. Um, they were just they were just pumping them out. And, and then uh, how long from when you graduated until you went downrange? Well, I graduated. Uh, I graduated flight school, reported direct to the 160th, and I actually assessed for the 160th while I was in flight school, which is a little bit of a humorous story. Nobody's ever done that. Um, assessed while I was still in flight school with no wings. They had orders for me, so as soon as I graduated, I went back up to Fort Campbell, immediately started Green Platoon, which is like the, the mission-specific for your aircraft and mission. And as soon as I graduated that, nine days later, I was got off a of C-17 in Bagram, Afghanistan, and was flying right seat as a basic mission-qualified co-pilot on my first assault. What, what, with, what equipment? Uh, MH-47. Okay. 
with the best man for my wedding, who is who is from SEAL Team Six. In you know that was my first assault. Oh, you were bringing SEAL someplace. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, little side note. I mean, I always I it wasn't but a year and a half when I left the teams where the guys I just left, you know, flying them on direct action assaults all the time. So that was kind of a cool tie-in. Very cool. Very cool. How long was that school? Uh, green, did you say Green Platoon? Uh, it was about six months, six okay. or seven months. Uh, does, is that everyone's first school, like first uh, kind of unit specific? Here, you're ready to be in the unit now. The Ever Wings. Now you have to do this. Or well, you, when that? the guys come, to, I was an anomaly. You gotta remember, I had no experience. I mean, no aviation experience to speak of. I had civilian time, like five or six hundred hours. Yeah. Um, so I knew how to fly airplanes and how to talk on the radio and all that. But the complexity, particularly of the MH47. I mean, it's so complex, you know, it's beyond the scope of the podcast, but the, the system management in the aircraft, the actual flying, the assault they're doing, the environmentals, and then the actual mission stuff is, uh, it's tailored for graduate level stuff. Like guys have been flying in the army for five, six, seven years, lots of pilot and command time, maybe a couple deployments. It is not tailored for somebody who has 200 hours in a helicopter. Um, yet there I was. So to say it was, it was overwhelming in a fire hose is... Definitely an understatement. Okay. You know, it was tough. I won't. I won't lie. I'm like, I, there was a few times. I'm like, as good as a pilot as I thought I was at the time. Um, the peripheral stuff, like I said, the mission management, understanding mm. the complexities of the mission planning and all that. Uh, you know, was melting my brain on a daily basis. But again, I had some good, some good guys that I was going through class with that helped me, and they recognized. You know, my strength is understanding the soft mission. My strength at that point was not being a super experienced aviator. So it kind of, and there was a couple other guys, there was a couple of guys straight out of flight school. Uh, one guy from the Ranger Regiment. Um, actually, there was a couple guys from the Ranger Regiment. So, we so were, guys we're had sort cool of operational boat. experience, yeah. but they just didn't have this part yeah. of the operation. Yeah, and the 160 still does that to an extent, you know, on a limited basis. Um, if you have a fairly extensive special operations background from a ground, as a ground guy or girl, um, you know, they'll bring you in. And it actually does, you know, the, mixing that flavor of having some guys that have spent time on the ground with guys that are very experienced Army aviators, it, it makes a pretty nice blend. Um, I you can know, see that invaluable. Yeah, yeah, it's a different perspective. Not every pilot's an ex-operator. Because you can think door kicker yeah. and, 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 and Or fly. be able to relay. They're like, hey, what are we going to do about this? I'm like, well, when we breached, you know, you probably right. need to be 8 or 15 feet away or something like that. Right, so, right, right. Um, plus, you know, every guy or girl on the ground likes to know that, you know, in every flight, there's probably at least one ex-operator up there, you know. Whether that really makes a difference or not isn't the point. Um, you know, when you're kicking doors, you'd like to know that there's somebody up there who understands your flight. Speaks your universe, yeah. yeah. How long did you do that for? I did that for 14 years. Okay. And did you mandatory? I mean, did you mandatory out or how come you got out? Uh, I actually, well... No, I didn't mandatory out. In fact, I don't even think there is such a thing. There's W-5s that are in there. You know, they just stay forever. Um, it was, you know, I had kids at the time, uh, our boys, and I was still gone, you know, seven, eight months out of the year. And when you're home, you're not really home. You're you're on, on a training trip somewhere yeah. or you got to get the six-week school at Rucker. Or, so you're never actually home. And, uh, and it was starting to take a toll because my boys were, you know, 10, 12, 13, something in that. So... Uh, I was at 27 years at that point, and uh, another Night Stalker who was uh, a legendary flight lead, um, he actually just wrote a book called Razor Zero Three, uh, a guy named Al Mack, who taught me a lot. I mean, he mentored me a lot uh, in the 47s. He had gone on and left the regiment, and he was the commander at 2nd Aviation Detachment at West Point. 
the uh, executive flight detachment. And that had traditionally always been a night stalker in command of that. Cause you know, you fly the superintendent, you're flying heads of state, you know, congressmen, senators, all that. So it's very, very high, vis high visibility. And he called me up uh, in between deployments and said, Hey, do you want to come up and command? Do you want to take over for me? I'm going to retire. Do you want to come up and command at West Point? So it was pretty easy. I called my wife. It was like a five minute conversation. I said, Hey, do you want to go to West Point for our last three years, which would take us to 30 years? And she said, yeah, you know, it was probably a little more in depth than that. That's just what I remember. And yeah. I called him back and said, Hey, we'll do it. And it was a pretty tedious process leaving the regiment, obviously at that point. Um, I mean, we were, we were excited to get out and get a, just have some time at home and like a normal life. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely, it's hard. It's hard leaving the regiment. Uh, a lot harder than I thought it would be, you know, like you're excited to get out because the moment you're like, this sucks. You know, you spend every deployment saying, I'd rather be doing anything with this. I'm wasting my life. And of course I did 16 deployments. So I had lots of time to think about how much it sucked. But the minute you walk out the door, you know, it's kind of like, playing hooky at home. You think it's a great idea to your home and then you realize all your friends are having fun. So that's, uh, it was a little bit of remorse, but you know, we went to West Point. It was an honor to be there. That place is a fabulous, I mean, it's an amazing American institution. Yeah. Um, you know, people Beautiful are human. Part and of they, country too yeah, up there people are human. They screw stuff up, but, but what they attempt to teach there, mm -hmm. you know, it's truly, it's truly all American, you know, and one, you got to imagine. So a Navy SEAL commanding anything at West Point, you know, the place where they, they birth the finest military officers in America. And then, uh, and I'm a warrant officer. I barely graduated high school, you know, and I'm, now I'm commanding at an Ivy League institution. And I also taught um, military leadership and ethics, you know, to senior cadets getting ready to graduate. So now I'm in a classroom teaching, you know, teaching cadets amongst all my peer instructors who are, you know, masters, docu uh, doctorates and and I don't think you're actually allowed to teach at West Point without a degree, but they didn't ask me. So I don't think I violated anything. <laughs> if they'd have asked me, I had to come clean. I'm like, no, you know, I barely got through the public school system. <laughs> so anyway, we, we retired from that in uh, June of 2019 um, and moved to Indiana for three years. You know, like I said, I, it sounds kind of blue collar, but I always, I could have done a ton of things. I always wanted to be a crop duster because I always wanted to fly uh, big tailwheel airplanes and that's where the big tailwheel airplanes live is in ag aviation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that now for? Well, I've actually done it since about nine years. So I used to take, when I was in the 160th, I was senior enough, I would take, we did 60, 60 days on, 60 days off, or 90 on, 90 off, depending on what the rotation was. So I would go and volunteer and take everyone's Christmas and Thanksgiving deployments. So I could take all my leave in the summer and go back to Illinois or Iowa or Indiana, wherever it was, and you know, crop fly crop dusters for 30 days because that's about how long the season lasts. So are you crop dusting now or firefighting? Both. You do both. Okay. Yeah. And your equipment can easily do water <clears throat> or yep. chem. Yep. Uh, um, I mean, they're different airplanes, same type airplane, but equipped differently. Okay. Um, so, you know, much to much to the dismay of my family because you got to remember now I spent what little vacation time I had every year, I spent it you know, working, mm -hmm. um, and very supportive, completely regret it now though. Now that my kids are older, you know, I'm like, you know, I should have spent that last four summers hanging out with my family, you know, mm -hmm. instead of trying to, as a, you know, as a dad or a husband, everybody can sympathize. You're like, well, I'm going to build a life. You know, that's how you justify it. I'm going to build a life for my family and it's an investment or future and all that. I, I will tell you, um, 
that's my one thing I tell younger guys. I'm like, that's eh, kind of bullshit, you know? Like if you you really think about building this castle and all that kind of stuff, and then uh, as we realize now, it's my youngest is about ready. To, uh, he's actually starting college, so in essence, we're empty nesters for real. And you're like, okay, so all that stuff I worked with, it's just now, now gone. it's just now coming to fruition, and. I'm like, why? My wife no, and I, listen, like, man. we could we could live in a 700 square foot apartment and stare at each other and be just as happy now. We we're about we're almost. I don't know what year were you born? 71. Oh, so I'm a year older <laughs> than you. We have just the same kind of thing. You build this life castle, and right about the time it comes together as a castle, everybody's flying the coop, going to do their own thing, and then you go, oh man, we don't really need this big house. What do we do all this for? Yeah, like I don't want to mow four acres. I got no, you know. The whole goal was to teach my kids how to work on machines and, and mow things, and now they're gone. So now I'm stuck mowing four acres. Where do you? Um, not in Arizona, obviously. But <laughs> where do you find your Where do you find your pilots from? Um, the majority of my pilots right now are are ex military guys. Yeah. Now, that being said, you know I generally don't like ex military pilots, <laughs> and I say that only because, you know the type of firefighting we do and the egg, you know, the crop dusting stuff, it's very blue collar. So, you know, there's no duty days, there's no safety parameters, except what we have as a company, you know, and you're not making money unless you're flying. So flying for a profit is a much different animal than military guys are used to, you know, the deal, the government, we're not interested in making a profit on anything. Right. And we don't care what anything costs. So, you know, particularly crop dusting, you're hot, you're dirty, you know, you're flying Carhartt's jeans and, and maybe a helmet and gloves, um, but very blue collar. If your airplane breaks, you got to get out and work on it or else it's not making you money. Right. Um, and most military pilots are not geared for that. Right. You know, there's a much easier lifestyle to be made doing something else. Airlines, corporate, EMS, yeah. you know, something like that. Yeah, the um, air show business was like that. Flying all those yeah. weird airplanes I flew, you know, you, yeah. you, you can't, hey, can you guys jump into my Vendenev M14 engine? At the yeah. Cutter Aviation? No, they can't. Yeah, but every once in a while, you'll find a guy who enjoys that type of flying, and you have to like that type of flying, yeah. you know? I mean, we're flying 16,000-pound, you know, 1,600-horsepower turbine tailwheel airplanes, biggest production single-engine airplane in the world, you know, at 160 miles an hour at 15 feet. So it has to be somebody who can live that lifestyle and also handle the airplane, which, as a tailwheel pilot yourself, you know, you understand you can't just pull somebody out of the street or out of Embry-Riddle or nope. something like that. I mean, it's it's almost... It's a lot of old-fashioned feel flying. Yeah, it's and we've got a couple of young guys flying for us. You know, we basically had to groom them ourselves from yeah. zero time um, to do that. So, anyway, we they're not all military guys. We've got a couple other people from various backgrounds. How many pilots do you have working for you? Uh, one, two, you got seven total. Cool. Everybody here in Arizona? No, actually, they're spread all over because the nature of the business, you know, they get mobilized and they just get a plane ticket and they'll go to wherever the airplane is, you know, whatever tanker base, fire base it's at or something like that. Very cool. Um, our, we're pretty small now. So our HR, our HR motto is no assholes. <laughs> and and it seems to actually work pretty well. Yeah. You know, we've, we've publicly, right up until you got about 50 people and yeah. it starts getting weird. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was told a long time ago, if you got people, you got people problems, Yeah, for which sure. even in our little scope is, is true. But, um, you know, hey, hey Bobby, would you bring my drink in for me, please? Our hours, our oh, hours Jesus, I forgot to get you mm. some McAllen. Uh, we told everybody in the company early on that, uh, hey, we are going to limit growth to being able to find good people. I don't care, 
guys, girls, whatever. Thanks. Oh, no, no. Just... Guys or girls to, to fly the airplanes and maintain them. You know, I said, buying trucks and airplanes is the easy part. Finding decent people that are going to work well with each other and not create hate and discontent at a tanker base, you know, or go get drunk or or tear up that million-dollar airplane, that's the hardest part. So that's right now that's what's limiting our growth is, is uh, people. For sure. Um, and you said you, you guys are flying out of uh, down in kind of mid other side of town. South. Yep. Where things grow. Yep. Very cool. Talk to us a little bit about um, the missions you went on during the uh, Gulf Wars, the Mideast stuff we've had going on. Um, well, I've gotten to see all of it, you know, from a very junior, junior perspective. I got to see the tail end of Desert Storm. You know, we got to see uh, Somalia, obviously not from the middle of Mogadishu perspective. You know, we were sort of off the coast and coming, you know, flying in and out of uh, Mogadishu, but not downtown. So, and I was young enough where, you know, whatever it was, 20 or something like that. You know, I'm not sure I conceptualized all that was going on. Um, and then, of course, there's nothing going on until 2001. Um, I was actually deployed. Uh, I was a leading petty officer, a team leader. Um, we we're actually deployed in Sri Lanka, of all places, doing, you know, recon on September 11, 2001. So, you know, when this was all going on in the States, we're huddled around this little six-inch black and white TV in the lobby of uh, uh, this nasty little hotel, you know, in Colombo, Sri Lanka, um, watching all this unfold. Um, was it a holy shit moment? Well, it was, it was almost surreal. I mean, I remember yeah. it clearly, but, you know, being in another country, again, not having internet and all that kind of stuff, the scope of trying to figure out what's going on, and, of course— you know, all we had was satellite communications back with the special warfare unit and all that. And uh, so trying to get information back and forth on what's going on, you know, and of course, we're all thinking, all right, everyone's got to get deployed. You know, we're all cocked and locked and all that. And it ended up being honestly, uh, several weeks, just because airlift and communications was so overwhelmed. Yeah, you know, trying to get people moved around. So by the time we got she got moved back and, and refitted and all that and tasks and all that, I mean, you're talking even a couple months or so. It's a big machine to get moved. Yeah, it is a big machine, and, and information moved well. Um, I mean, a little side note with that was, uh, we so every night all we could watch was BBC on this little six-inch black-and-white TV in the lobby of this nasty hotel. And uh, so we're all sitting there watching, and the BBC guy goes on there, and he's like, you know, and America's got special operations forces spread all over the world to respond, blah, blah, blah. And he goes by every continent and says, these are – What's all stationed there? And he says, in Sri Lanka, there are two platoons of Navy SEALs. And we kind of looked at each other because Sri Lanka is a pretty small country. <laughs> yeah. like, what the hell? So our team chief at the time, he's like, all right, everybody go back and pack everything up. And we did. I'll he's like, we're getting out of here. You know, because our rooms were, you know, we had satellite comms sticking out the hotel door, you know. Rooms are all, all the ammo. Everybody's sleeping fully dressed every night, you know, gunned up and stuff. And uh, so we'd load. We had two, uh, two or three little minivans. So we're loading all this guns and ammo and comms equipment, all this stuff into these minivans and uh, moving. And uh, no kidding, you know, as we're going out, guys are coming in, locals, like, where are the Navy SEALs? We know they're here. And what had happened was the, the ambassador, America's ambassador to Sri Lanka, of course, he's in the know because he knows who's in the country. I don't know if he thought he was going to get, you know, points for, hey, this is what I have, you know, in my territory. 
but he's the one who told everybody, yeah, oh yeah, we've got two platoons of Navy SEALs in, in Sri Lanka. You know, now 16, 220 pound, you know, tall, blonde haired white guys does not necessarily move around stealthily in Sri Lanka as it is. But we weren't, <laughs> at least we weren't out in public in daytime and, right, right. you know, but anyway, so he let the entire world know that we were there. So good job. Yeah. So we were, I don't know. I didn't remember the guy's name, but I did look him up. I'm like, you jackass. Yeah. Um, so we were on the run for, you know, kind of nomadic for a couple of days. And finally they're like, all right, Hey, C-130 is going to come in at whatever time it was two in the morning blacked out. And uh, they did a Navy C-130, you know, rolled into this dirt strip and everything kept running ramp. It actually was taxiing real slow and we're throwing boxes on the back, you know, and then we collapsed all security and got on. And that's how we finally, that's how we started the war. You know, that was just, just to get it rolling. And that was, you know, X amount, a couple weeks after the attacks. Where'd you guys go from there? Well, we went back and retrofitted and, you know, everybody, they actually disseminated the whole platoon and everybody, because by the time we got back to the States, they had already decided, all right, of these 16 guys, you know, we've already got platoons ready to go and they're just dispersing them, okay. you know, all the different stuff. And we had guys going, you know, straight to go do Objective Rhino, guys going, believe it or not, to the Philippines, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, wherever there was, you know, Islamic Extremism issues going, going extremists yeah. going on, yeah. you know, they were farmed out pretty quick. And I assume that was probably the same, you know, for all the other uh, forces and stuff like that. I mean, it was, it was busy. And uh, so when I say there was no remorse, there was a little remorse in the fact that the teams, you know, I've been there for 10 years, just getting excited to go to war, which I would tell somebody now, do not be excited for it. Like it's really cool for like the first six months. And then after that, you know, 20 years is definitely too long, but uh, you know, just as the teams were getting rolling, getting to do business that we'd trained for, for all these years, well, then I got what I wanted, you know, and then I get sent to flight school for yeah. for a year and a half. Um, you know, I ended up getting the bulk of it on the backside as a pilot. Talk to me a little but, bit about uh, the training evolutions. You've done lots of schoolhouses. I have. And some <laughs> people say, oh, well, you didn't do anything. You spent your whole career in school. That would be true if I'd only done like 10 or 15 years. But when you do 30 years, you know, <laughs> you can absorb all those schools. It's, and, and get triggered time. And, and still, yeah, and yeah. still get a lot of time on the road. Talk to me a little bit about all the training you did. Um, I've had, you know, obviously chances to talk to lots of Navy SEALs. I've got SEALs in the family, and and uh, I, I've had a couple of people tell me the scariest thing they've ever done in training, and it was the same thing. What's the, What was the scariest thing you ever did in training? Something that ever was like, oh, my God, this is like, this is awful. Well, I think in the SEAL teams anyway, you know, a lot of guys, I don't know why we do this, maybe because just Bud sucks, but. You know, the whole time in your budget, like, oh, if I just get through this, I'll have it made. Well, you think that's true. And then as soon <laughs> as you check into the teams. There's another thing. I mean, you realize that, dude, that wasn't even, like, Bud's is JV when you get to the team. You know, only because the expectations are so high and the train is moving so fast. And there's just absolutely zero tolerance for, you know, what we refer to as shitbaggery. You right. know, in Bud's. You just have to pass the evolutions and they may think you're a dirtbag, but if you pass the evolutions, you continue on down the road and eventually you graduate. You know, it's much harsher in a SEAL platoon or a SEAL task unit. And I assume it's the same in a Ranger company or an ODA. You know, once you get there, you're new. And particularly during the war years, you know, when you, you roll up into a platoon and there's guys that have been three, four deployments, you know, yeah. done X amount of hundreds of assaults or whatever. I mean, that's a, a daunting place to, to roll into. Um, Anyway, so, you know, what the hardest thing is, the hardest 
thing is just absolutely every evolution is a do or die, you know, for either physically or for your reputation. Um, you know, cause you only have to screw up one big thing, you know, no kidding. That, that'll follow you in the SEAL team's room. You may not get kicked out for it, but that'll follow you forever. You know, you'll always be known as the one guy who accidentally loaded live rounds in his 160th or in his uh, M60 instead of blanks. You know, there was a guy that did that, you know, and that's the guy, the guy had a name, you know, or someone else had screwed up a dragger and caused a guy to get a cost of cocktail. I mean, just, you know, or accidentally shoot another guy, which has happened to us, you know, both downrange and in training. So you, you only got to have one screw up and it'll, it'll follow you forever, you know, and, and we all know that even though people say, oh, it's all right, you've recovered from it. You, you never actually recover from it. Not from big ones. Not, not from big ones. Um, I mean, I do, it sounds silly, but all the things that we did, I remember literally doing just a, we did a four or five day recon. And uh, to this point, you know, we're so used to everything you're doing has got safeguards. Safeguard, you know, at least there's somebody watching you to make sure you don't fall off that cliff or there's someone watching you to make sure you don't, you know, screw up the demo or something. You know, I mean, you may not know it, but there's always some cadre that's keeping those boundaries on you, you know, for safety. And we were at the end of this four or five day recon, stumbling around at nighttime. And uh, the last thing we had to do before we got exfilled was climb this cliff. And, and it was actually my mistake. And I look at this map, I'm like, well, we just got to climb that. And I think we're at the LZ. Again, this is like before GPS. So, and we started scaling it and it was straight up, you know, it probably was a 75 or 80 feet, but it was straight up. Everybody's tired. And the scariest part of that is get halfway through that. And you realize I'm like, whatever it was, two in the morning. I'm like, you know what? If I actually fall from this, I'm going to die because there is no safeguards. You absolutely have nobody but yourself. And on top of that, if I fall, I'm probably going to kill two or three of the guys that are underneath me. Yeah. Um, so that's not my proudest moment. But when you realize that that's scary because you always think, oh, someone's got my back. You know, there's some sort of cadre watch and something like that. Well, being on your own is. Uh, Every once in a while, you know, you get to that spot, um, you know, like they say, you know, no one's coming to get you. It's, yeah. uh, you know, self-rescue. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's every once in a while you get to that point where you realize it really, you have your entire life, you know, that however long that's going to be, you actually have that in the palm of your hand. Yeah. Better or worse. So basically it's pressure cooker the whole time. There's never a relaxation. You, it's kind of pressure cooker the whole time. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. there are some fun times like, like you would think there are, you know, skydiving days and stuff like that. But yeah. You can even screw that up, but it's rare. Yeah. Um, but in every organization, and I only know special operations. That sounds pompous, but I just I don't know anything else. Right. You know. So everything you do is purposeful, and you either do it right or you're a turd. So, um, just so that I have the, I have this right because I I don't speak army quite the same way. I don't speak army at all, actually, but. <laughs> When you're talking about the equipment you're flying, we're talking about the dual rotor CH-46 that I'm used yeah, to, yeah. some tactical version of that. Or is it just you're hauling? Is there yeah. a gun, there, door gunner? Absolutely. So, you know, I bless Greg Coker, and I love the AH-6, and they're awesome. You know, and everybody sh like that, everybody should love what they fly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was raised on, I've flown everything. I flew Blackhawks. I flew... Uh, MH6s for a little while, just as like an introductory thing. You know, I've flown every airplane. I've flown 50 or 60 types of airplanes, but uh, the MH47G in particular is just the world's baddest piece of machinery, um, you know, known as the the Iron Buffalo. 
I mean, and it's big. It's not slow, but it's big. It's not sexy like Little Birds. It's not, you know, doesn't have a movie made about so it. So like is Black that the Hawk one that Down. looks like a CH-46, but it's got the turbines on the back? Well, it looks like a, yeah. So the, the conventional Army version is called a CH-47F. Right, okay. Um, yeah, tandem rotors, okay. you know, uh, twin engine. I just engine. wanted to make sure I was. Yeah, twin yeah. engine. Uh, the ones the regiment flies are completely different animals. They look the same, but, uh, you know, they've got more powerful engines. They've got 1,000-gallon fuel tanks on each side. You know, lots and lots of armor on them, terrain following radar, air-to-air refueling probe, um, forward-looking infrared radar, laser dark targeting. Um, so it's all the shit the choppers should have had in the original build contract, but oh, in order yeah. to get the deal, they didn't I mean, it's them. a bad, you know, there's places, um, we joke about it, and, you know, little bird guys hate the Chinook guys, Chinook guys hate everybody, and so on. But, you know, if you really break it down tactically, each one of those aircraft has such a particular mission that... If you instead of comparing them, when you realize how well they, you know, they all work together, because yeah. you know you've got you got Gravy and his H sixes and the MH sixes carrying the operators in, and they're getting in places we couldn't even think about getting a Chinook in or even a Black Hawk. You know, once those guys are are on the inside, you know, setting internal security and kicking doors. Now you got the Hawks that are doing, you know, their assaults, and then we can bring in a Chinook with you know seventy or eighty Ranger Regiment guys that are just you know, stormtrooping doors all around. I mean, when you get that all in concert, in concert, you realize what an effective package, you know, the regiment as a whole is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, the culture between the different platforms is brutal. Yeah. Like, give me make you know, make yeah. no mistake. You yeah, know, it's pretty tribal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very very divisive. Very tribal. <laughs> um, you know, nobody wants to be a little bird guy because they hate each other and they hate everybody. Um, but they're the best in the world at what they do, whether it's H sixes, MH sixes. Um, the Hawk guys, you know, whether it's the DAPS, you know, or uh, or the Lift version, best in the world at what they do, you know, and the Schnooks are the same thing. So it's all the same mentality, but different platforms. And it's almost like the inter-service rivalries of yourself. If you just focus on what we were meant to do, you know, what SEALs were meant to do, what Ranger Regiment's meant to do, and focus on that, you realize, you know, and I realize this is a mature perspective, but how well, you know, they interact with each other. Well, it's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. And you can't just buy a bunch of, like, you can't just be a rich country and buy a bunch of shit and make that happen. Some countries have tried. I mean, there are countries who've, who've tried to buy the aircraft. Right, they can buy the aircraft, but all the talent that makes it all happen is a different deal. I, I, I'll tell you what, I could, I've often thought, you could go out there and just grab me any conventional Army airplane. I had a strip-down Blackhawk, strip-down Chinook, you know, a strip-down whatever, Huey or something like that. And we could take the guys from the regiment and put them in those airplane and those helicopters, and they could do a better mission than if you take average pilots and put them in top tier. Put them in top tier helicopters. Yeah, and it's you know it's not the machinery helps us overcome lots of adversities. You know weather, terrain, enemy action, all that kind of stuff. But that's not that's not the deal. You no. know the pilots and the hearts of the pilots and the crew chiefs and stuff. That's that's where it's at. People underestimate. You know like. Takes work ethic, creativity, and discipline to hold a military together and be awesome. And I imagine if you took our military and put them in Russian equipment, put the Russians in our equipment, kick the shit out of them in a similar way. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I've often, I never believe in the power of the machines. I believe in the power of the people. Yeah, me too. It's it's how you train them, and it's your heart. Yeah, me too. And I see that everywhere in business too. People that focus on the talent have these great companies that people don't focus on talent have very ephemeral businesses. Talent's really the key. Oh, absolutely. And that's totally off track. I mean, that's, that's just a leadership problem. You know that. Mm, sure. Um, 
So, you've not had to crash a helicopter in in uh, in action before? No, not really. No, we, ever, bash, we bashed some up pretty good, but have nothing you, that didn't fly. Have you? Uh, tell us a little bit about how much damage one of these aircraft can take before it's uh, shocking amount. Before. Shocking amount of damage. <laughs> Let's hear um, it. You know, maybe I, I can't speak intelligently on on little birds or the Blackhawks, but you know, a Chinook. It's doing a job. It's modified, but it's doing a job it was never originally designed to do. You know, it was designed as a cargo helicopter to sling load. It was never designed to slam into the ground. You know, at at 200 foot per minute rate of descent. You know, slamming into the desert five times a night. You know, browning out at 200 feet. I mean, we've had. I have myself. I have ripped landing gear off, landed on boulders. You know, and crushed the bottom of the helicopter in where we're kind of like stuck on it. You know, wondering can we can we actually get off of it? <laughs> um, you know, we've we've hit the ground, rolled forward. You know, crashed the probe and stuff through a, you know, an adobe wall. You know, I mean, just for those of you who don't know, it's got a big boom that sticks yeah, off the front of the chopper. It's got a 16, 16 foot air to air refueling probe in the front. Um, you know, I've had friends of mine come into LZs and chop trees down with the blades. Um, we've had guys and keep uh, on flying afterwards and keep on flying. We've had guys go in to do air to air refueling, um, and actually chop the, the, uh, hose with the blade Yeah, and I uh, make incredibly unstable, you know, still, still landed. Everybody lived and all that. I mean, I'm sure their telling of it was, it was an obscenely violent, uh, flight to the ground. Um, we've had guys rip all four landing gear off of them before. Um, <laughs> in fact, the same guy. This is a legend, and, and I can't recall his name, but it was before my time of the 160. But they, everybody would tell the story about it, that uh, he was actually at Fort Benning flying Rangers around and heads down, messing around, you know, with radios and stuff, and just hit just the right angle where it came in and hit a berm and sheared all four gear off, and the helicopter just stopped, all running and everything. And uh, um, the Rangers didn't know any different. It was just like a normal assault landing for them, so... Ramp came down. They all hop out and set up security. You know, only then did everyone realize that he just ripped all the landing gear off. <laughs> I mean, and it's gotten better since you know we have learned how to operate in a in a really nasty, abusive assault environment. The beginning of the war. I mean, we were damaging helicopters, not even to enemy action, but we environmentally. I mean, we were just tearing helicopters up from obstacles on the LZ, browning out at two or three hundred feet. You know, when you land three twenty two-ton helicopters, three or four 22-ton helicopters in the span of a football field with talcum powder dust. Yeah. You know, I mean, you are, you can't waffle around and take your leisurely time getting down. I mean, you you have to get down, and damage just occurs. So, um, you know, the technology, as I left the regiment, we were starting to get technology where it wasn't an auto land, but um, it was coupled up with a radar altimeter, and it would allow a more civilized landing even in zero-zero conditions. Mm. Um, but I mean, it's just kind of the nature, nature of doing business at war is you're going to tear some helicopters up. Were you in Afghanistan and in Iraq? I was, I only, I only did two deployments to Iraq. The rest were all to Afghanistan. How many deployments in Afghanistan? Uh, 14. You ever added up how much time you spend in country? I did. I don't remember where it is, but, but I did at one time and it was ridiculous. It was total. It was like five something years total in Afghanistan. What, tell me what went was going through your head and heart when you saw the way we left Afghanistan. Uh, I actually tried to be agnostic about it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I honestly spent a decent amount of time. Uh, I didn't get too emotional about it. I'm like, well, screw it. You know, I'm like, I never want to go back there. And I found this odd because 
when I left, I purposely told everybody to include my wife. I'm like, I'm not doing contracting. I'm never going back there. You couldn't pay me a million dollars to go back to Afghanistan. You know, say you hate it. But on the other hand, much like everyone else, when you spent that much time there, it becomes less about the terrain and the people of Afghanistan and becomes more about, oh, well, I remember flying with Bink on this and there and our B-Hut was there. And I remember, you know, so when you spend that much time there, unfortunately, I realized you do kind of have a heart for the place, you know, because we built it. You want it to survive. I mean, we yeah, even even the structures and stuff. Yeah. I'm like, we built it. Yeah. We built that stuff at Bagram. We built that stuff at Kandahar. You know, we, like physically, you know, every time, every deployment you go there, you would build something. Um, so that was hard. And it was also really difficult for me. And I, and I don't care about all the equipment. Honestly, this is probably the part where we get political. I'm like, I don't care about how many billions of dollars of equipment we gave them. You know, I really don't care. Um, the part that was disheartening and angering is, hey, we gave you everything to support yourself and you don't even have to become a democracy, just don't become a Taliban safe haven. You know, we gave you everything that yeah. any country could possibly ask for and you couldn't last a week. Right. You know, which tells me it wasn't, it tells me that you, you, I say you, the pronoun people, like the people of Afghanistan, you didn't even attempt, you know, it's a, you didn't even attempt to make a stand. We violated Star Trek's prime directive. You cannot get a primitive species to rise up just because you give them the stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not it's saying, cultural. I'm it, not saying Afghans are a primitive human being. I'm saying they have a primitive culture. They have a primitive way of thinking. And well, I, I, don't, if, I don't know if, if you we can have get any them to, faults, it was making the assumption that they wanted the life that we wanted for them. Right. You know, I, again, I don't care how many billions we gave them and all that kind of stuff because. We piss away billions on several countries, not just Afghanistan, right. that don't deserve it. Right. So that's not who, the who issue. Who else do we piss away billions? Oh my gosh! You, you should ask some. You should now that I'm retired, you should ask somebody how many millions of dollars a month we paid Afghanistan to keep the one road open so we could bring trucks, fuel trucks, and food trucks and stuff through uh, Afghanistan. Oh, you mean through Pakistan? Pakistan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, and this I is, that was like ten thousand dollars a truck or something crazy. Well, it's like ten or fifteen uh years old in knowledge but at that time it was like 18 or 19 million a month right to allow the trucks passage you know and they yeah. still pilfered 20 percent or 30 percent or something like that crazy so, um anyway so that that was my heartache with with cnn and afghanistan and and i'm and i'm heartless when i say the, the people didn't bother me as much as just the fact that you know because what we saw at Kandahar airport or bagram airport or whatever that was that was the the meat of the the media news flash. Um, there was a lot more going on. You know, the fact that they allowed that to happen. Right. That was disheartening. But again, I think it's our fault. We we assumed that they wanted the life that we were resourcing them for, and they don't. Um, so it's very silent. I think those of us who spent a lot of time there, like we did over, you know, basically I refer to the best years of my life from, you know, from 31 until... 45, you know, I spent in Afghanistan every year I could count on it for, you know, two or three deployments. Um, like it's pretty painful. Just you want it to flourish. You at least, you don't want to see all the stuff that you physically built torn down. So yeah, everybody's got different opinions on it, but I know several guys, you know, that I flew with and stuff, we would kind of banter back and forth on Facebook or whatever. And, and we're like, yeah, that's a shame. You know, remember, remember we, we set that bee hut on fire trying to cook toast or something. You know I mean? Just, just memories like that. Yeah. Um, and that was difficult. It feels, uh, you know, look, I wasn't in Afghanistan and I, 
I just it feels like we got built all this time and energy building a dam and then the dam just got washed away and you know you just kind of if you're really deep into a project and you have to start from scratch or the whole thing's gone and you just don't go finishing the project that's how it kind of feels kind of vacant i i was i'm you know, I think about every time I had to count bullets in the Marine Corps. I think about every time yeah. we drilled over every little piece of gear and every little piece of equipment, and then we just walked away like from that fifty bucks I had to pay for my poncho liner or something. <laughs> That's going yeah. crazy. Um, it, 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 what's gone on the last twenty months in this country is uh, it's been kind of hard for me to. It's been hard for me to remain optimistic. I, and I, I try agree. really hard to be optimistic. I, I'm optimistic, but I keep it very narrow in scope. Um, and I still think like I'm in uniform, so I'm like, well, I really can't say that, but I guess I can, you know? Yeah. Um, there's nothing more important to the success of America than security. And I don't mean that like in a political way, but, you know, the economy, consumer confidence, all that stuff depends on security. The stock market, I mean, it all depends on on real or perceived, you know, either physical or emotional security. And when you don't have that, you know, things just start crumbling. And well, I just feel like we're in this weird erosion because we have, you know, people ask me to go speak at political events and I go, I don't want you to, you know, I don't want you to do anything. I don't have a, I want you to do nothing. I want you to get rid of stuff. I think the only thing we should do is secure our country and make sure energy is affordable and everything will sort itself out perfectly. I actually agree with that. And it sounds simplistic, but I think it can actually be that simple. Yeah, I think you know, so for too. the majority of stuff and and holy cow, could we get on a, a political rant, you know, but I, I firmly believe in security and I I've told several civic groups, you know, who don't believe in that. I'm like, just look at your town. If your town, if you're whatever town you live in, I don't care, Tempe, you know, Phoenix is a different deal, but smaller towns, I'm like, if you don't have a robust law enforcement presence and EMS fire you know, if they're not keeping riffraff out of the town and take care of speeders and all that kind of stuff and elements start moving in, well, when those elements start moving in, nobody wants to move to your town because the schools suck. And if nobody's moving to your town, that means your tax base declines. And when your tax base declines, that means all your, municip your municipalities suffer. Everything and it's this vicious cycle. Yeah. And then nobody wants to move to your town, you know? And right. so the one thing that fixes all that is security. Right. You know, and, and I guess you probably need to, one needs to move out of the U.S. or a little bit and see what, see what some nations look like that are not secure. Somalia, Horn of Africa, Afghanistan, Pakistan. I mean, somebody needs to see that to understand truly. You know, I laugh. They're like, oh, we're anarchy here. I'm like, give me a break. You have no idea what anarchy looks like. Right. You know, in my hometown, which I won't even name, there's some jackhole who continues to fly the flag upside down. I don't care. I'm not going to talk to him. But like, you really think the country is in distress? I mean, do we have some inept and, and difficult leadership going on right now? Absolutely, but we are not in distress. You know, like if we really wanted to, we could take control and right the ship. You know, so if you think we're in distress, you really don't have uh, a clear vision of what it could be like. You know? Yeah, I've had people say to me, you know, this is the worst it's ever been. I said, you know, at Gettysburg. There was a lot yeah. of people across from a field yeah. with guns running at each other. January 6th was a beer fart and a windstorm. That's no, oh, nothing, nothing compared to Antietam, Gettysburg, Vicksburg. Talk, talk to somebody. My my uh, my mom talks about it every once in a while. Talk to somebody who lived through 1968. 
Right. You know, I so mean, we're the country Kent literally, State, Kent yeah. State and uh, the, the, the protests that were going on yeah. in the country. I mean, I mean, the country was literally coming apart at the seams way worse than it is now. Right. You know, I mean, talk to somebody who lived through that, you know, and their perspective on what's going on now. I mean, they'll say, yeah, it's a shame, but it's not like, you know, when the entire country is physically and emotionally racially segregated, you know, with no hopes of, of binding back together lots and lots of violence all the animosity you know because of the vietnam war and its effects and all that i mean that was a lot going on uh at that period which is way worse than what we have going on now so let me talk to you you know i think we get a sense of the the bricks that were laid to make the wall that is you the <laughs> building that is you um what do you see for yourself because you know you and i are about the same age what are you going to do the next 10 15 20 years you're going to fly airplanes and I just kind of be a squinty-eyed old squinty-eyed old I'm trying, man. I'm, I'm trying to not be old and grouchy. So one of the big differences, uh, one, you know, not to get too deep and meaningful on your show, but I'm oh, trying we're, to be, we're, yeah. we're pretty good with deep I mean, and I'm trying to be a better husband and a better dad because I screwed that up and there was... Oh my God, I didn't do that well. <laughs> you know, and, and I say that because, um, like I said, I've got, you know, sons that are serving their country right now. My youngest is awesome. You know, he's going to Grand Canyon University here in Phoenix. But I spent the best years of their lives and the best years of my life gone. In a helicopter, yeah. Yeah, and I thought I was doing something that would make their lives better. Now, they learned a lot of lessons. Sure. I mean, both they and my wife are hard like woodpecker lips. You know, they're they're prepared. Whatever the country turns into. Did you I don't... just say hard like woodpecker lips? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they are hard. So I don't have to change the world. All I did was was you know, help grow my wife and my sons to deal with it, you know, and that's one way to look at it. But I, all the times I could have played with them, taught them more stuff, taken them to the range, like all those dad regrets. My oldest, the day before he left to go to uh, army basic training, you know, and on to infantry and ranger school and all that kind of stuff. And so like his last couple of weeks at home, I tried to do the dad thing because I was finally out of the military. I had some time and I'm trying to do dad things, all these dad things. And he really, he kind of looked at me at one point, I'm probably paraphrasing, but he's like, hey, dad, don't bother. And he wasn't being a jackass. He wasn't being snarky. But his point was, hey, why? He's like, why bother now? You know, you're not going to make up for the last 20 years in two weeks or a week or whatever it was. And that. What, what were you trying to do with him? Well, you know, subconsciously, his dad, you're like, hey, let's go shooting. Let's go fishing. Like all the things you like to do, let's go do it. And so we'll try and fix the last 20 years in this last two weeks. And, you know, that that was probably the most impactful sobering moment of my entire life because oh. in that instant you know you realize this uniform with all this cool shiny stuff and everybody thinks awesome and patting on the back oh, and all that stuff you know like i would and all the people all the uh mentors at that time who said hey just do one more deployment or hey just stay for a couple more years and i you know what you want to do is you want to punch them in the throat and say you lied to me now it's really my fault. It's nobody's fault. Right. You know, I could have made a change at any time, you know, but I, it was a cat's I, in the cradle yeah, moment though, but for I, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't realize at the time, but you know, and I fell for it. I had one command chief warrant officer, you know, when I was like, Hey, I need a break. You know, I need to go hang out with my family, which is dumb because everybody in the unit's got the same song and dance. Right. And you, you know, you think you're special. You're the only one. Um, and he's like, Hey, now he goes, I'll tell you right now, kids are like, kids are like, like rubber balls, man. They're resilient. He's like, just give us a couple more years. You know, they'll bounce back from this. And, and I kind of used, I rationalized that with heck. Yeah. You know, 
I'll go do two more deployments. Um, you know, anyway, so that all goes away the night before uh, he goes to, to basic training. You know, I'm laying in bed with him, petting his little head like I used to when he was little, you know, when I'd come home at like three in the morning, smelling yeah. like gunpowder or jet fuel or whatever, and I'd kind of pet him or, or reverse the process when I had to leave at three in the morning and go on a deployment. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I, I did that totally wrong, completely wrong, and you can't ever fix that. No. Nope. And that's that's always what I tell younger guys. Are now. the boys at peace with it? We're they're old enough now. You know, we're in a different relationship. You know, like my uh, oldest is married, middle's married. Um, you know, youngest is what he is. Uh, he is definitely not married. But um, I've apologized to him, and they're like, "Ah, Dad, it's okay. We understand." They probably really won't understand until they're like thirty or so and they have their own kids. Well, how old are your boys? Uh, one is. 28 one is, oh. is 21 and they're one's kids. they haven't even done their work yet yeah. they start looking in the mirror and looking at their own life and they're going to come back and be mad for a while and then they're then they're gonna they, there's a whole process they got to go through yeah i mean they'll you know like i said as they start raising their own family they'll probably be like okay dad's not crazy now the funny part is my boys that are in the army you know several times they've come back now and, and we have bonded over over similar experiences sure which is kind of funny yeah because they're like oh I thought you were just batshit crazy. You're not. This really does suck. You know, so we, we've got that in common. But it still, as a dad, it still doesn't make you regret, you know, missing all those times. Right, it doesn't make up for all that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I suppose it's probably no different. It's probably more meaningful than some guy who's in sales or something like that who's gone all the time and mm -hmm. misses the family. At least you can rationalize it by saying, you know, I did something that was useful or noble or whatever, but it doesn't make it hurt any less. You know... It's an it's an old human story, right? That's why the Cat Stevens did the song in the 1960s because we've all been bit by the ass. And if you're successful, it's hard to be there and that kind of present because you're out hustling. If you're out in the business world, you're out hustling and you are traveling. And yeah, I don't know. There's some lifestyles, but there's the lifestyles where the dads are home all the time. Not a life I ever really wanted. No, it, you know, and then what's funny is I'm not a super self help reader you know i'll read a lot of a lot of tech stuff a lot of history i'm not a self-help reader but i've read a couple books you know talking about like what makes men tick and and it's all it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter if you're in sales or you're a mechanic or you're a seal or whatever i mean all men who have the correct genetics and upbringing that's what we do you know we we have to have a purpose we have to be accomplished we we have to know that our you know wife girlfriend significant other whatever um approves of us and you know things were attractive things were successful yeah i mean it's all pressure we put on ourselves um but it's the truth and you know? that and that and you know uh the nurturing lessons of a father are nice but uh, the lessons of dedication success hard work and providing is a goddamn cornerstone of western civilization it is and the interesting point is i had no like i had crappy dads it, <laughs> you know i did like my <laughs> my birth dad i never met my mom, you know, married a succession of dudes. So there was always, you know, some guys in the house and none of them were worth anything. Um, all of my positive male role models came well when the dads were gone, you know. Flying um, guys, men in the Yeah, military. well, maybe not even flying guys, but just different people that I chose yeah. to, to emulate. But it certainly wasn't any man that was in my house. Yeah. You know, so I guess somewhere along the line, there was guilt because I always promised myself, even as a teenager, all right, when I'm a dad or a husband, I'm going to do it correct because I've seen what it looks like, you know, done incorrectly. And, you know, I got some of that right, you know, and some of it I screwed up. 
But at the time, you, you know, you think you're doing the best you can do. You know, my parents are proud of me because I think they think I did it pretty damn. I did it a lot better than them. And I feel all the time all these big gaps in what I've done. And I hope my kids do better. <laughs> I mean, I think that's probably the self-aware progress of humans. And it wasn't 100 years ago. Most of us were poor everywhere. I mean, yeah. 100 years ago, World War One. this was a pretty primitive country. You know, it was fried pork chops on a good day. Yeah. Yeah, meat was rare. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a, it's a very, very modern convention for us to fetch over our child-rearing shortcomings. <laughs> Especially when you uh-huh. see the pictures, the black and white pictures of your, you know, grandparents, folks from the turn of the century. And you see the hard look on their face. And then the hard bones and you go, like, it's pretty damn. easy you look at those and you're like i'm not hard yeah <laughs> you look at that you go all right i got air con- i got air conditioning it was a different water. time then you yeah. know yeah well very cool um and if somebody have you done a biography yet or have you like, sat down and start writing your biography because you, know, you got funny. a pretty cool My, life you've had it's a quandary and everybody who listens will kind of laugh because i'm like man i've been told by several people you know, because I've done a lot of podcasts and a lot of leadership stuff. I'm like, dude, you got to write a book. I'm like, yeah, but then everyone will hate me because every ex-seal writes a book, you know. However, like I said at the beginning, I, I have started taking notes mainly because there's things that are starting to fade, and I never thought they would. Yeah. But there's things that are starting to fade that mean a lot. And I'm not talking about chest-pounding war stories, just thoughts and, and episodes and stuff that, that shaped how, no kidding, like an uneducated fat band kid you know, joined the Navy, went through BUDS, you know, spent X amount of time on SEAL teams, you know, world's most elite helicopter unit, you know, not not being an overachiever. And, and I know that sounds coy, but just not being good at long division, not, you know, not being college material. I mean, somehow I made it through that. And I truly believe, you know, like I said, it's, it's because of very specific, pivotal people throughout sure. that 30 years. And so... At some point, I would like to tell that story, but using the framework of the people that came into my life, you know, I was, I was gifted with, blessed, came across, whatever, that made decisions or influenced me directly, you know, and every one of those was a life-changing turn in the road. It would be a really cool book if the name of 12 chapters, you had a 12-chapter book, and the name of the, each chapter was that person who did that pivotal that's a good idea thing in your life because it seems like that you've mentioned that several times and you've talked about that and you know my uh jeff my right hand guy here he has i've heard him give the speech he says you know you're only going to be two or three people in your professional career that will that will turn the whole thing for you you got to be aware when they come along yeah yeah i mean that uh, would be a great book though yeah and one of them wasn't even a man one of them was a a woman optometrist in the navy or I'm sorry, in the army. Um, and I do have to tell the story because it's a pretty funny one. So the Navy paid for me. I had a horrible vision. You know, there's no way I was ever going to be a pilot. Somewhere, I can't remember, mid-90s, something like that. The Navy had an experimental program for PRK, for SEALs and fighter pilots. Right, right. right. So I was like one of the first ones in line. So as soon as they gave me my PRK, I started looking for a way to get out of the Navy so I could go fly. Because that's really <laughs> what I wanted to do. Yeah, you like, know? Thanks for the eyeballs. I'm yeah, out. Thanks for my new eyes. Thanks for my 2015. Um so when I did my, my initial flight physical to apply for warrant officer candidate school, 
right? And it was a special forces uh, flight surgeon that and did it. That's usually a disqualifier. Yeah, it is. At that time, it was. Yeah, it's not now, but it was then because you're talking like 2000, mm -hmm. 2001. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, so it said, "Have you ever had eye surgery or something like that?" And I looked at it. And I'm like, "Well, he's like, ah, he's like, don't worry about it." He goes, "Unless they map your eye, he's like, they're never gonna know." <laughs> and so I went through this whole, you know, this whole deal. So I'm standing in line at Fort Rucker in processing um, Warren Officer Candidate School. Like there's a hundred of us or whatever. And we're standing in line at the autometrist office. And one of the first things you do is everybody gets a flight, a flight physical, right? Sure. To make sure you didn't sham the system. And uh, the medic stands out there and says, okay, everybody, you're going to get uh, your eyes looked at, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to map your eye. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm up here. You kidding me? And so the guy behind me, I knew he was going to walk through walk school with me. I don't remember his name. And uh I said, dude, but he was actually a, an enlisted, you know, eye technician, whatever that is in the army. I said, dude, what am I gonna do? You know, I said, I've had PRK. And he said, Hang on a second. I used to work for this colonel and I don't remember her name. I've got it written down because she's gonna be in the book. And I don't remember her name, but he used to work for her and she was in charge of this trial. Um, experimental trial thing for the army to accept uh, flight school students with PRK. And so <laughs> he actually stepped out of line because it was a long, like a two hour line. He stepped out of line, walked around the corner, got her, Colonel, whoever it was. And I, I still talk to her aide every once in a while because she's still at Fort Rucker. Um, and he's like, all right, come with me. And I walked into her office and I'm like at attention and scared to death. I'm like, here it is, my career screwed. Like I just got rid of a an awesome like, Navy SEAL career. Yeah. yeah. And at that time, they wouldn't send you back. You're right. just done. Like enlisted, you go out to the Army. Right. To serve your four years or whatever. <laughs> and her words out of her mouth exactly were, so, I hear you'd like to be enrolled in my experimental program. I'm like, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And this is, take this, this is all happening as dudes are going down the line getting checked. And uh, so on the spot, she enrolled me in this program and she said, oh, as I'm on the way, I'm like, thank you so much, ma'am. She says, oh, by the way, Mr. Rutledge, we'll make an appointment and we'll talk about the apparent integrity issue at hand here. And she wasn't joking about it, but she saved my career. I mean, can you imagine? Did mean, they actually map everybody for PRK? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so she stood there when they mapped my She's like, oh, she's, he's in the program. Go ahead and give him a waiver. You know, but that was in like 20 minutes of this Ooh. whole story being completely <laughs> different. I've got her name written down. Holy smokes. Um, I remember I'd have her name tattooed on your shoulder. Oh, yeah, if I, can, I I will find her at some point, but uh, I do remember her assistant was uh, a woman named uh, Gina Bissett. And uh, and she was always, every time I'd come in, you know, to get eyes redone, she'd be like, oh, it's our integrity issue. I mean, kind of jokingly, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that was always a reminder. I mean, this close to having a career. Oof completely altered and then you know but i went on to have a highly successful you know aviation career in the army but talk about someone there's two i just gave you in this podcast two right there that just completely changed the entire trajectory of not only a career you know but very likely my life that's the book man that yeah. is the book i don't i honestly wish my boys suck them out of me every once in a while but i wish i had good chest pounding stories you know war stories and stuff sure and i have them but they always come out in the flavor of, you know, wow, we were getting shot at this. And then the guy looks over and says, I'm hungry or something. You know I mean? Like the focus is not the actual war story. Right. It's just something, it's just a vehicle for something silly or stupid that happened to be going on at the time. 
Well, you know, to be able to tell the story and traverse a career and have other people read it and go, oh, this is, I know what he's talking about, or have some, someone young read it and go, I read this thing about that. Turning turning points. Yeah, I, I like I said, I wish I had awesome, you know, war stories. There I was with Bin Laden. I mean, I just don't have any of those. And, uh, you know, always brought everybody home safe, which I guess that's a feather in the cap anyway, you know. Um, I did have a corpsman that got shot one time, you know, and he's actually, unfortunately, he has uh, since passed, you know, by his own hand um, a few weeks ago, but from stemming from those injuries and that. But, uh, you know, I just don't have any super, nothing that would be movie worthy, I don't think. Um, just lots of stories that were possible because of people, not machines, mm -hmm. not not, hey, I did all these awesome things, you know, not, I trained Chris Kyle or something like that, which is like some stupid stuff Brandon Webb would say. That is, you know, I have, is. he has said that to me. Oh, my gosh. It's like, oh, yeah, I taught him how to sniper, I, I can say it, oh, yeah, training. yeah, he just, we won't get, there's not a one single team guy that has anything good to say about Brandon Webb. Oh, no. <laughs> and if they do, nobody hangs out with those team guys. All I know is I met him at the, uh, I met him at Gillespie Field at the fly-ins we used to have out yeah. there, Bones Fests. And uh, and I'd met him a couple of times. And, you know, the the, the aviator types were like, oh, he's an aviator. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't mean uh, – well, it doesn't mean he was a good pilot, you know. But, um, <laughs> I, I, didn't know. Do, I didn't do any tactical flying with him, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't do any flying with him. I don't know. I You know, I will say – he was he was probably the first to understand the value of branding of self branding. So I I will give him that you know and his his media exploits and all he that. He and Marchenko, right? Well, yeah. Well, I mean the post nine eleven. Oh yeah. Okay. You know he was of the youngsters. He was yeah of the youngsters. He was the first one to to uh, figure out how to how to make that brand stick. And you know mm -hmm. once you're in the marketplace, it's really kind of hard for anyone else to to get in it. So. He understood that, and, and he was a visionary, you know, for that. It's just, you know, he, he sold out a lot of the integrity of, of the teams to do so. Mm. Well, that's too bad. Uh, everybody down there in that, that Southern California world gets uh, can end up getting more gravity on them. You know, if you Bruce Lee didn't really deserve the heat he got. Ronda Rousey, she didn't deserve the heat she got. There's a lot of people in Southern California because it's such a media hub, and there's so much hip, yeah. cool, and trendy that happens out of SoCal for the whole country. Um, people, odd people get the headline. <laughs> you know, and I will say, when you see soft guys, girls, whatever, when they write stories, I, I don't read them very often, and I don't care who they are, Ranger Regiment guys, SF guys, whatever. Um, the ones you read are the ones that take the time to make sure it's an accurate story because, you know, what a... Uh, what a lot of pressure to write something or even do a podcast or something like that, knowing that all, you know, all of the brotherhood, I don't care, it could be in the 160th, it could be SEAL teams, whatever, that all the brotherhood is watching, making a judgment, you know, did he oh, or yeah. she accurately represent the teams or represent the regiment or, you know, are they telling a story favorably or is it just a spotlight, you know, so he can get his 15 minutes of fame, get his book out, yeah, you know, whatever, have a million followers on Instagram or something like that. You know, and it's pretty rare. There's there's a handful of guys out there that that do it right, you know, and they do justice. Um, you know, there's there's a few out there like we talked about where it's I'm more interested in the notoriety of the money, the media than I am 
accurately, um, you know, representing the breed. And and my boys know this, and I told them from day one, you know, not to be coy, but I'm like, you know, dad's not a hero. I said, I'll tell you what, the the dudes who changed the course of American military history since 9-11 that actually have done deeds that are so incredible and so complex and almost unhuman, like, you'll never, ever hear of them, ever. And it's not because, you know, they don't want uh, a pat on the back or anything. They probably do, but they're the type of people that are not trying to get accolades for them. You know, I mean, one of the groomsmen in my uh, wedding um, five years ago or so uh, retired from SEAL Team 6. Just the quietest, funniest, goofiest dude. I went through buds with him too, and we were roommates and so on. And and But an absolute pipe hitter at war, you know, and just multiple, multiple uh, deployments, all the big stuff you see in the news, you know, he and his squadron were on, um, but a funnier, quieter guy, you're not going to find. And he's just one of, you know, hundreds across, like I said, the Ranger Regiment, the ODAs, the CAG guys, you know, the rest of the SEAL teams. So um, that is my reluctance. If I have a reluctant uh, or if I have any hesitations in writing a book or something like that, it's because it's a lot of pressure to tell the story to where it accurately reflects, you know, the spirit of everyone involved. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I think, uh, I think you have a unique perspective because of the way you think about it. And you can almost tell the career story without getting into the nuts and bolts, of all of the responsible details and just saying, you know, this is what you should be looking out for young man in your life. There are these flags that come up along the yeah. way. Cause that's impactful. The war story books aren't very impactful, quite frankly. I think they're short. I mean, I think you read them, you're like, oh, that was horrible, but you don't retain it. Right. You know, and it's not like of, a life lesson you yeah. retain or anything. You're like, yeah. gosh, well, I hope I'm never in a, I hope I'm never in a, a Hilux getting shot at, you know, or something. Stupid yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. Well, you know, you, you've got a, a, a fun perspective, you know, and one of them is know what you want to do, ask, push, see what happens and get, get lucky. That, that is what I tell people I, when I, cause I, I still do a lot of mentorship with young people. Mm -hmm. They're either trying to get into SEAL teams or they're trying to get, you know, in the 160th or I still write letters of recommendation for guys trying to go to flight school and, and heck I've been retired three going on four years. And, uh, and I tell them like, dude, no, nobody's going to do this for you. Absolutely nobody. I said, so here's this whole list of things to do and I'm not going to help you with it. You know, you said you wanted to do this. Here's how you do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everybody, and it's kind of the, I've almost got to memorize now. I can get it down to like a, a two minute elevator speech. Like everybody is spring loaded to say no, cause it's easier. I said, you only got to find one person that'll say yes. So if that guy tells you no, find out who his boss is and ask him. And if he tells you no, I mean, and you will understand when you get to a certain point when no means no. Yeah. You know, I said, but you don't want to go spend the rest of your life doing the whole, I wish I woulda, coulda, shoulda, wondering, you know, well, if I just asked that one more person, maybe they would have said yes. Yeah. You know, there's, um, I, can't, I heard a quote the other day. I don't quote much, but um, a guy said, and he goes, you know, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And that is true. And I'm not saying everyone needs to be, you know, a chess beater. But I run across frequently, you know, when I was kind of on the speaking circuit and stuff, and I run across lots of guys, ironically, that are my age, you know, 50s, you know, kids are teenagers or yeah. now empty nesters, something like that. And they are living a daily life of silent regret 
you know, they may have good jobs, they make half a million a year or whatever, but they are living lives thinking, I wish I would have tried this, whatever it is. Yeah. So when I talk to young people, I'm like, dude, this is the time you're 19. You have mm -hmm. no wife, no kids, you know, no responsibilities. I said, this is the time like this, this five year period between now and 25, if you want to chuck everything and go live in hostels and hike the Himalayas, I'm like, this is the time to do all of your stupid stuff. I tell young people uh, also that everybody up the chain is looking for someone to say yes to. We're all looking for yeah. somebody who's got the balls and the juice to ask. Everybody who is in a, a no or yes position is looking for the right person to say yes to. And I tell them they're going to say no because they don't want to take a risk, but be the one they want to say yes for. And I think about it in every career, whether you want to go be a fighter pilot, everyone thinks it's just some unattainable, far off ethereal. You know, that's what I got my whole life. Oh, you're a fighter pilot. You don't come fighter, fighter, fighter. I always say, I'm like, I can't be the dumbest person to have ever tried this. <laughs> I mean, I had to break it down, you know, pretty Barney Purple Simple. I'm like, I'm not a smart dude. And if that guy did it, I'm sure I can do it. Yeah, they, I guess I'm like, well, shit, those guys are morons. If they're doing it, I, you know, I ought to be able to do it too. Uh, <laughs> side note. So at my 160th assessment, you have to take the psyche eval, right? And this intelligent IQ exam. Sure. And I'm sitting in front of the psych and his name is Doc Franklin. And everybody knows him. He's since retired, but legend. And so, and he was just point blank, you know, and, and I'm thinking I'm the cock of the walk. And he's <laughs> like, so how do you think you did on your uh, IQ test? Oh, you know, and I'm like, well, I, I think I'm trying to be political. You know, I'm like, well, I think you did pretty good, sir. He's like, no, well, I mean, he goes, how do you think you did? Like, well, I, you know, I'm not the smartest guy. So, but he goes, hey, listen, how do you think you did? I said, well, I think I did well. He goes, well, <laughs> he, goes, he goes, you're not going to fly the space shuttle, but you did okay. <laughs> so, that was like my stab of mediocrity. And he wasn't exaggerating. He's, he's like, yeah. He goes, you're, you're not top tier in this position. He goes, I'm, he goes, it's a good thing you're hard. You know, Fantastic. Yeah. So Fantastic. if that's motivation for anybody who doesn't think they're good enough. Yeah. You know, and, you know, keep in mind that, Every one of these positions I've ever been to, the whole time I was in SEAL teams, the whole time in the 160th, at West Point, you know, I've, I've suffered from now what I've been told is, you know, imposter syndrome. I oh, even, yeah. I didn't even know what it was. Right, right, right. You know, and someone explained it, I'm like, like that's it. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm doing the job. I'm taking it. Oh, yeah. going to find out that I'm a fraud. Oh, yeah. And, you know, anybody who kind of knows me on the outside who doesn't really know me, they're like, oh, he's, he's awesome. He's super confident, you know, proficient. On the inside, really, I'm like, dude, everybody's watching and to think I'm going to screw this up. You know, and that's how I manage most of my successes is being scared enough of screwing up, you know, to just do it. But, uh, you know, just imagine the quality of individuals in the SEAL teams, in the 160th that I'm surrounded with, guaranteed they're surrounded by all kinds of people that are way better than I was. You know, I kind of just made up for it with effort instead of talent or, you know, or initiative and effort. And, uh, you know, and then you get to West Point, surrounded by Ivy League people, I'm like, certainly they're going to find me out. Um, so, yeah, imposter syndrome for, for 30 years. And if nothing else, I guess that is my that was my motivating factor. That's pretty funny. I had the weird blend of a mom that uh, 
gave me lots of affection and said I could do anything, and my dad would whoop my ass <laughs> on a on a short on a short stroke. And so I had that weird blend. I was like, oh my god, all the time I was, I was like, oh my god, don't let anybody. People say, oh, you must be really proud of your company. I'm like, actually, I just go to work to make sure I'm keep working in case when the axe swings, my head's down working and it misses me. Yeah. How how important to turn the tables? How important is it to hire hard and manage easy? Because that's what I tell people all the time. I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm like, I am not a super dude, but I am I am a wicked judge of talent. Yeah. I think that's probably one of my strengths here. Yeah. It's to just nine people come through and how do I pick the one that I bring in? Because <laughs> they could mess everything up pretty easily. Yeah. Well, listen, fantastic uh, having you in. And uh, I hope we connect outside here out in the aviation world. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for letting me rant for a little while. Yeah, good times. Um, when you're ready to promote your book, let me know. Right. <laughs> I will. You'll be the first one. Cool. Well, you guys, Mike Rutledge here with a uh, really cool background across two special forces communities, which you don't hear too often. Pretty neat. We're going to talk off camera, and he's going to tell me some behind-the-scenes scoop about all different kinds of people, so all you guys fucking be <laughs> jealous. That's the Greg Mafford Show. Thanks for coming in and joining us. Check us out on Spotify. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out on Rumble. I know you're probably seeing a lot of you uh, kind of find us on YouTube. You can jump over there to see the unedited uh, and uh, the unthrottled and the uncensored versions of everything we do here. I'm out, folks. <laughs>